It looks like we are headed for a hot war with at least Iran. What does that mean for us and how should we prepare? I believe that we are going to head into a time of increased trouble. And um, I believe the scripture is pretty abundant in its clarity on that fact. Something that I was thinking about yesterday and talking to my wife about was, God help us to get out of the Pollyanna dollhouse fantasy world that we have been raised in, in, in America and Western culture, mm-hmm. where the values have orbited around wants, around self-image, around the superficial impulses and flatteries of, of fleeting flesh. And God help us to, to come into alignment with something, uh, with your eternal purpose, with your plan, not just for my personal life, but for the church, for your people yeah. at this hour. And help us to raise our children where they have the fortitude and the grace and the, the strength to face the times that are coming. We don't know exactly what that is going to look like, but I do feel convicted in my soul that we will not survive as isolated individuals or even families here and there. We need to be a global network of fellowships of the body of Christ, where we have all of the five gifts operating, where we have love, covenant, and trust among each other, and where we can be complete in Him. I don't believe that the gates of hell are, are going to be withstood by an individual. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the church is not whatever we call church. You know, we can't just take that label and smack it onto anything that names it and say, okay, good, that's good. Gates of hell aren't going to prevail because we know that in times of trouble, many churches have utterly collapsed. Look at, look at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer story in, in the Lutheran church in Germany. I mean, it completely folded and capitulated. Even the Catholic church. So there were those of conviction who had the grace to work together and, and, and represent an alternative. But I think that what we need to do to prepare is we need to become the body of Christ. Next question. Do you affirm the Nicene Creed? If not, which parts do you disagree with? And if yes, does this in any way conflict with your oneness or non-Trinitarian beliefs? Thanks in advance. So unless you believe that the early church fathers, as they're called, were inspired like the apostles, it is idolatry to give a creed hundreds of years after Jesus the same weight as Scripture. And yet, that is the kind of idolatry that we see around creeds like the Nicene Creed. I love the idea of a common confession. That was present in the days of Paul. But if it runs afoul of Scripture, it cannot be given equal or even comparable weight as Scripture. It needs to be, it needs to lose in the face of, of, of the Scripture. So there's a lot about the Nicene Creed that I'm sure we agree with across the board. We, we would look at the Methodist Creed and say that we agree with that across the board. But there, there were some conflicts occurring in a very paganized, compromised church at that time that that we do not agree with. And one of the horrible con- uh, conclusions and confusions that was occurring was regarding the Godhead around that time. So if you don't know your history behind 
the the backdrop of the Nicene Creed, you might you might research it because it was pretty ugly and it it does not give one the confidence of inspiration such as we share toward Paul or Peter or the other apostles. You want to read it, Dan? Or well, just a comment first. <laughs> And I'm not an expert on the early church history stuff, but as I understand it, you know, the whole thing was convened uh, for political motives. It was, there was already a hybridized situation where we have, you know, we have Constantine appointing himself as the 13th apostle and presiding over these councils and such that are coming up with these things. And, you know, there, there's splits in the church over understandings of the Godhead and things like that were viewed as a threat to the empire because we've got to have a consolidated viewpoint of these things. And so they, essentially we're trying to let's come up with something that we can compel agreement with. And Under so, pain of death. Yeah. So, And, and I think the, the original version of the Nicene Creed even ends with some, they took it out now, it's not usually used, but it ends with something about how the, the, the holy Catholic Church is going to condemn and put out anybody who disagrees with this and you know, it was like the whole thing was conceived as a, a mechanism for bringing unity hmm. for the purpose of consolidating political, political. power yeah. because they had married the religion, the Christian religion, with the state in, in an unholy alliance, if I may say so. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just saying bad trees don't produce good fruit. Right. And we should expect that something that is uh, plagued with the leaven of those kinds of motives to be a little off. Mm-hmm. But yes, I can I can read it to you. Yeah. This is this is a like a ecumenical version because there are a bunch of versions of the Nicene Creed. It got revised over the decades in the early days, and then it's been revised since then. They've they've you know fixed it up to accommodate various changing trends. And if you hold to the Methodist version, we already would say that we subscribe to that. You want to take it kind of slow, or you want me to just read yeah, the whole thing? Yeah, let's take it slow. Okay, we believe in one God. Okay, Amen. Agree with so, that. so far, it's pretty good. <laughs> we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. <laughs> you know, I want to, I'm just going to comment right up front here that there's a lot of this that we could agree with if we understand the terms Right. in a scriptural correct way. But their understanding at the time of forming it, we do not agree with. Yes. So, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial to the Father. Okay, so th- this is pointing towards modern formulations of the Trinity where they say there's one substance but three persons. Mm-hmm. And that's how they get around all of the obvious scripture that talks about that God is one. And yet, somehow, there seem to be these three actors, if you will. So, it's really just a pee and shell game, the whole one substance but three persons, because what they're saying is is common is God's godness, if that makes sense. It's like saying that you and I have in common our personness, our humanness. And so... There's no meaningful sense in which you would say that we are one, one entity, and to pretend just because we are of the human race somehow, that, that allows us to say that we're one entity, we have one substance. That dilutes the scriptures about God's oneness to mean that there are, in fact, many gods, but 
they all share one substance that they are all God. It's their godness that they share in common. It's yeah. convoluted and I might say ridiculous, but and the use of the word persons, of course, then further complicates it and confuses it because if we're saying if we're contrasting person to substance, then yeah, we have to view substance as this godness thing right. and the person as some type of specific identity of of a personal being. Right. right. But consubstantial to the Father, it's simpler to just say He was the Father. Yes. That the Father is Spirit. God is Spirit, mm -hmm. Jesus said. And that same Spirit indwelt into the man, Christ Jesus. Yes. So in that sense, He's the same substance because He is the Father. Right. <laughs> and as Peter said, He was foreordained from the foundation of the world, but He was revealed in these last times. So in, He was only pre-existent in the foreknowledge of God, in the sense that He knew me in my mother's womb. But it doesn't mean, and, or, or He actually says, before I was in my mother's womb, doesn't mean that there was a pre-existent me, and it doesn't mean there right. was a pre-existent Son. It was in the foreknowledge of God, but he was revealed in these And there again, times. it's a language thing. Eternally begotten of the Father. Right. How they are interpreting that is to mean that somehow before time began, which of course doesn't, there's no before. If, if you're outside of time, that's a hard concept. But uh, that somehow Jesus was existing as a person in heaven. Right. And that he somehow came down to earth. It's going to say that here in a minute. It just confuses it because eternally begotten in what sense? We could agree with that, I think. I think I would agree with this if we mean eternally begotten in the sense that it was always in God's eternal plan that the Son would be begotten. But as Paul says, he was born under the law, born of a woman. At just the right time, right. Christ came. We're at the fullness of time. He was at just the right time he died for the ungodly. But yes. at the fullness of time, he was yes. born under the law, born of a woman. So there is a point in time in which Christ appears and Christ is begotten in that sense. The merger of, of divinity and humanity happens at that time. Yes. But we also have John saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that it's through the Word that all things are made. And we know he's talking about Jesus. So is there a contradiction here? Uh, they say that up here that the one God, the Father, is the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And then here they say, uh, consubstantial to the Father, through Him, meaning the one Lord Jesus Christ, through Him all things were made. So which is it? So which one is it? Mm -hmm. If there are two persons, if there are two wills, if there are two entities here, then which one was it that made the worlds? Yeah, I like Brother Howard's... Uh what he did on that John 1, where he says, you know, if you, if you want to arrange that as father and son, in the beginning was, was the son, the son, and, and the, the son, son was, was with, with the, father. the father, and the son was the father. <laughs> the word became flesh. And, and the dropped. father became flesh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. Um, but if you understand what we're saying, it does. And, and we, we acknowledge that there is a sense in which God calls those things that are not as though they were. There is a sense in which even foreknowledge in the mind of God, a yet unspoken word, can be spoken of as being with God or pre-existing in some spiritual metaphysical sense. There's That's possible. That's what we see in, in Proverbs 8, where he talks about wisdom was with me when I made the world. But he says in Isaiah 64, uh, that he was alone when he made the world. So we just, part of the problem is we're, 
we're using a human construct of Greek rationalism to interpret things that are admittedly difficult because they are spiritual and they exist outside of our our experience. Yeah. Should I keep going? Yeah. Okay, so consubstantial of the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He used to say, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. But they took that out for probably obvious reasons. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. So it says here, again, it says he came down from heaven. I've never heard a Trinitarian offer me an, an effective explanation of how the person of Christ existed and then came down and was conceived. Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah. How, how did that, how did he go from being the fully formed son man? Yeah. Uh, what is it? Is the person a man? Is the person a God? Yeah. You know, anyway, <laughs> it's just, it gets complicated. Uh, so he came down from heaven. We would see that as the Father yes. manifested himself on, in the earth. Great is the mystery of godliness, yeah. that God, the Father, was manifest in the flesh. Yeah, exactly. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is all good, if you understand it according to Scripture. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. <laughs> Once again, not a good choice of language. Right. I don't, I don't see that. Okay. <laughs> With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. With the Father and the Son. Yeah. So they're not using the Holy Spirit interchangeably as the Father and the Son, as, as an expression or an agency of the Father, they're using it as a separate person. So it's not, they're not with Paul when he says, if, if you have not the Spirit of God, he does not, you do not belong to him. But if anyone hath not the Spirit of Christ, you know, he's using them interchangeably, as Scripture does repeatedly. The Spirit is not a separate person sent down from the two of them. The Spirit is the agency of anointing that is God coming to us. Yeah, when Jesus said, uh, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Yeah. You know. Maybe he and the Spirit were going to come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that the Son says he won't leave them orphans. Well, who would remedy their orphan status by coming except the Father? So if, if Jesus coming remedies their... he says their... the Spirit is going to come from the Father. Right. So, so it, it only... All aligns if you understand that they're all all one in the same spirit. Right. God oh. is spirit. And Jesus and if, was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Which so. they admit. So if the spirit was the father of Jesus, what part did the father play? Why do we call him the father? If, if that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, as the angel told Joseph, it's just convoluted. And, 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 and that's why we reject this whole thing that confuses our relationship with God that confuses Scripture, that tries to glue onto Scripture terms and structures that did not exist for a hundred plus years, and instead we, we want to return to the simplicity that is in Christ, that there is one God, 
Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he has revealed himself in his human expression as, as his son, Christ Jesus. And there is one spirit, that same God gives of his spirit to mankind in small measures and small portions. To the son he giveth without measure. It finishes here. This is still about the Holy Spirit. He has spoken through the prophets. We could agree, but it's confusing to designate the Holy Spirit as the only entity that speaks through the prophets. Did God, did God the Father ever speak through the prophets? Mm -hmm. uh, how many places are there in the oh, Bible yeah. where God is speaking? So I am this, a father to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is Ephraim not my son? He says to, through Jeremiah, am I not his father? So was the Spirit the father or was the father the father? <laughs> the whole construct... I want to use a theological term, but I don't want to get too dense. It's baloney. <laughs> we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And by Catholic, they're not using that as a proper noun, but as a universal church. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the word Catholic means universal. It does. That's what it actually means. So Catholic with a lower C. So... There's a way in which we could almost choke down every phrase in the Nicene Creed, but knowing the history of where it came from, there's no reason we should treat it with the same weight that we consider Scripture. And there's a lot of confusion that has spread through that Roman imperial solution to a political problem that we don't feel like has served the church all that well. Amen. We have one last question here. What is preterism? And what is the difference? It says of Hebraic roots, but maybe the difference from Hebraic roots? I don't know that those have anything in common at all. Preterism is the idea that all prophecy has already occurred, generally speaking. It looks at, at things as have, having been already fulfilled. Um, in, the, in the eschaton discussions, it typically says that that which is predicted has already come. And uh, Hebraic roots, I don't... I don't really see that there is a lot of, I don't, I'm not sure what the overlap would be there that, that is being inferred. Are, do you see that at all? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it may go a little more hand in hand with dispensationalism mm -hmm. because, you know, it like the whole concept that Jesus's prophecies in Matthew 24 and some of that is only talking about the destruction of Rome right. in 70 AD. And right. so they say all that has already taken place. And so... That that already happened. That's the only application mm -hmm. uh, of that prophecy, mm -hmm. and so they then discount mm -hmm. the timeline and and the un, the order of events that he he gives sure. as referring to something else other right. than what happens at the end. Right. Uh, so we take issue with both views. Yeah. Uh, we don't have anything. We don't we don't subscribe to preterism at all. Um, we would see that there is a continuum of prophecy yeah the whole thing comes from a from a, an assumption right. that it's an either or right a fallacy that it, it was either fulfilled for example in 70 a.d or it refers to the second coming of the lord or something else and there's so many things in prophecy that the bible itself details out multiple levels of the ways and things which things are, are fulfilled yeah like we, we use the example of out of israel i have called my son right Speaking of Hosea, I think, is where that appears, and it's speaking about the people of Israel being called out of Egypt and, and so forth, and yet Matthew says that it was 
Jesus literally as the child came out of Egypt from, from his exile there so that it would be fulfilled what was written out of Egypt I have called my son. Yes. And then we see in the New Testament right. admonitions to the church, you know, yeah. come out of her my people. Yeah. That's, that's Babylon, but figuratively Egypt and Babylon right. are synonymous. So <laughs> there's just there are layers to things and if we can understand that concept, then a lot of this debate about, you know, prophecy. was Daniel's prophecy only about Alexander the Great, or did it also refer to whatever, yeah. Iraq or yeah. you know, something? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just this idea that God speaks truths, and they are unfolding on an ever-expanding level until they reach their culmination. And so we look at the sacking of Jerusalem as in part a fulfillment of what Jesus says in Matthew 24. But then we look at other things, like when it says that at that time, the Son of Man will come and gather the elect from the four corners. And that didn't occur. And we say, okay, that, that, so that wasn't the full fulfillment. We look at, uh, we look at where he says, um, it will be a time of Jacob's trouble such as has never been nor ever will be again. And we say, well, that was a horrible season in the sacking of Jerusalem, but the Holocaust was orders of magnitude worse. So it can't be the worst yet. And, and these... Prophecies are spoken, and they are they are real and fulfilled on ever increasing, expanding levels until they reach their ultimate culmination. And that's a lot of times seems to be the problem in interpreting uh, eschatology and interpreting scriptures about the end times, prophecies about the end times. We say, was this about Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes? And we say, absolutely, it was. But it's not, that's not the full thing because they also are symbolic of greater things like them that are coming in the future. So people, entire lives can be symbolic. Here I am and the children Yahweh has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel or in Zechariah. These men are symbolic of men who are to come. It's too truncated to ask, was it fulfilled here or was it fulfilled there? It's both. It was fulfilled there, but it is clearly not fully fulfilled because there are aspects of it that remain unanswered. I don't know how that would connect to Hebraic roots, except maybe, uh, like you said, they're confusing that with dispensationalism. Yeah. But I don't, I don't really see that either as Hebraic roots. Hebraic roots is the idea uh, that um, the law has a more central role in our lives than Christians have given it credit for. And... If you're not talking about the movement of Hebraic roots, I think that the idea of getting back to the roots of a Hebrew way of looking at this, of, of salvation and the Word of God and, and the church, I think that's godly. I think that's helpful. But the movement has really tried to pervert the clear understanding that Paul gives regarding the law and parse it in ways that we could get around what he said and say, oh, that was just for Talmud or that was just for circumcision and what he really meant was this and that. And I think it's well-intentioned a lot of times, people who follow it, but it just seems like a, a not rightly handling the word of truth. It seems like a picky and choosy method that is not consistent. So, Amen. Is there anything yeah. else? No, sir. Okay. God bless you and Lord willing, you'll see us next week. Mm -hmm.